If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, in which we explore the past, present and future of science fiction. Find it at 101sf.blogspot.com and head over to YouTube to find my Bradbury 101 series, in which I look at Ray's books and movies. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the life and work of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Hello and welcome to Bradbury 100. On the 16th of November 2021, I gave an illustrated talk as part of the University of Wolverhampton's ArtsFest 2021. It was an online talk presented via Zoom in which I extolled the virtues of Ray Bradbury's The Illustrated Man. And what I'd like to do in this episode is present to you the audio from that recording, slightly edited to take account of the fact that you won't be able to see any of the pictures. At some point in the near future, the video recording of the event will be posted online, and when that happens, I'll put a link on my website, bradburymedia.co.uk. But for now, please sit back, listen and enjoy as I talk about Ray Bradbury's The Illustrated Man at 70. This is Ray Bradbury's The Illustrated Man at 70. Um, For those who don't know, The Illustrated Man is a book, and Ray Bradbury is the author. So I'm going to take you through a little journey back to 70 years ago so that we can think of the book in terms of how it would have been seen when it was first published. And then we'll look at the way the book and its contents have survived and developed over the 70 years and have been reimagined in various media. It was Ray Bradbury's third book. He was born in 1920. In his 20s, he published his first book, Dark Carnival, a collection of dark fantasy tales. And then after that, a sort of novel, sort of short story collection called The Martian Chronicles. And then in 1951 came The Illustrated Man. So it's only his third book. By this time, he had risen very rapidly from being an author who wrote mostly for pulp magazines to an author who worked for the much more, um, shall we say, lucrative markets of the so-called slick magazines, uh, glossy magazines that paid much higher rates than the pulp magazines did. And, of course, this being his third book, he was doing quite well as a book author at this point in his career. When we think about a book, obviously we think about the text inside the book, which is written by the author. But before we even get to the text, we encounter a whole load of other stuff. Um, the, the term has been used by many people over the years, but the, the one most associated with it is the literary critic Gerard Jeannette, uh, who wrote a book called Paratexts, Thresholds of Interpretation. And Jeannette really places a lot of emphasis on those sort of peripheral things that surround a book. Um, He says that a text is rarely presented in an unadorned state, and at the very least, with the text, you'll have the author's name, the title, possibly a preface, possibly illustrations, so all sorts of um, things that surround the text. 
And Jeanette says they surround it and extend it precisely in order to make present the book's reception and consumption in the form of a, of a book. And these accompanying productions constitute the work's paratext. So I'm using this term paratext because I want to emphasise that before the reader even gets to the stuff that Bradbury has written, there's a load of surrounding material that kind of draws them in in the first place. What sort of things am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the cover of the book, for instance. This is the first edition of The Illustrated Man from 1951. And, of course, you can see the name of the author, the title of the book, but also the cover art, which in this case shows some sort of human figure in a sort of abstract form. If we take a closer look at some of the detail of the cover... Stories by the author of the Martian Chronicles. So the publisher is trying to put you as the reader in mind of some previous book, which they have published as it happens. But if the reader knows the Martian Chronicles, they will know that the Martian Chronicles was a book mostly of science fiction stories or stories told in a science fictional uh, style or using the tropes of science fiction. So seeing this on the cover makes the potential reader associate this book with that previous book. If they know the Martian Chronicles is science fiction, they will assume this book is science fiction. So th these are the, the games that the paratext plays with us before we even get to the text. And if we look at the cover art in a little bit closer detail, um, we can see that the human figure that sort of dominates the cover is also decorated with these smaller objects. Now these turn out to be uh, references or allusions to what's in the book. So it's a book of short stories, it's a book of mostly science fiction short stories set in space, there's some time travel, there's some other science fictional shenanigans that go on in there. And the artist has tried to represent this within the imagery on the cover. But why is it dotted all over the body of the human figure? Well, that's because the book is about a tattooed man. So the artist is trying to represent the tattoos uh, in a kind of abstract way. Uh, another part of the cover image shows this um, stylized lion. Um, what's this? Is this an African jungle? Uh, are those vultures in the sky? And what are these human figures alongside? It's kind of suggesting that we're going to be taken on a journey through some of these places. And indeed, that's what the book does. And if we look to the back cover of the book, we see that there are critical tributes to Ray Bradbury. And there's a number of people quoted there. We'll go in closer and we'll see Christopher Isherwood is at the top of the list. He was quite a, a famous author in the 1940s and the 1950s. One of the um, first serious literary figures to uh, extol the virtues of Ray Bradbury, the writer. And here Isherwood says, The sheer lift and power of a truly original imagination exhilarates. His is a very great and unusual talent. So famous writer telling us about another writer, a, a younger writer. And the other people quoted there um, may not be so well known as Christopher Isherwood, but in their day they were significant figures. Anthony Boucher, Fletcher Pratt, August Derleth, all of them were important editors and writers in the fields of uh, mainly fantasy literature 
of the 1940s and the 1950s. So all of this is before the reader even gets inside the book. And all of this helps prepare us for what's inside. And what's quite important for a book like this, which is a collection of short stories, it also helps sort of insulate these stories from any baggage the stories might be bringing with them. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that all of these short stories, in fact, had been previously published elsewhere, and they might bring with them some sense of familiarity for some readers. They might bring some baggage. Now let's go into the book. So the book begins with a prologue and ends with an epilogue. Those were both new. There's one story sort of near the middle of the book called No Particular Night or Morning, which is a new story never before published. But all the rest had been published somewhere else before this book came out. So what I'm going to do is take you on a on a journey through the book. I'm not going to cover every single story because there isn't time, but I'm going to pick a handful of stories that are really very significant, the, the kind of major uh, stories within this collection. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about the background of those stories, where they had been previously published, the kind of baggage they might be bringing with them. Um, and along the way, we'll look at what makes The Illustrated Man a great book by a great author. So first off, let's start with this, Esquire. This is a men's magazine from the 1950s. We, we need to place ourselves in the 1950s and kind of imagine the world that the reader would have been in. Television just about existed in 1950, but more people got their entertainment from radio than they did from television. Uh, the transition period in the United States was really something like 1948 to 1953 showed the transition from um, more people listening to radio to more people watching television. In the UK, it was a little bit later. It was really around, I suppose, about 53 to 60 that people began to shift away from radio and towards television as their form of home entertainment. In 1950 as well, paperback books weren't really a thing. Uh, if you wanted to read a story, you would buy a book uh, or you would buy a magazine. And there were lots of magazines that contained just fiction. And there were lots of these general magazines that had some fiction within them. So they might have journalistic articles, but they would also have some fiction as well. Anyway, this is uh, one such magazine called Esquire. And within this particular issue, The Illustrated Man. This is Ray Bradbury's short story, The Illustrated Man. This short story is not in the book, The Illustrated Man. What Bradbury did was he wrote this short story, published it in a magazine, and then he took the basic idea of the story and rewrote it to create the prologue of the book, The Illustrated Man. But this particular story is slightly different. Well, it's actually significantly different from the prologue to the book. Now, I hope that's not too confusing. But in any case, what we see here is the first appearance of Bradbury's character, if you like, of the illustrated man. And what the illustrated man is, is a tattooed man. He's a carnival character, a kind of a freak show character, uh, who is tattooed from neck to toe. In the illustration, you get a sense of him being covered in tattoos. Now, again, we have to kind of 
put ourselves back in the 1950s. Tattoos were not really much of a thing in the 1950s. Uh, okay, sailors might have had some tattoos, and people who worked in a carnival freak show might have been tattooed from head to toe if that was their job, to be the tattooed man or the tattooed woman. But most people on the street didn't have tattoos. So this was a, a, an exotic thing that Bradbury was presenting here. But this whole carnival atmosphere that's present in this short story turns out to be quite a significant strand in Bradbury's work. It turns up in a number of short stories. It comes back in a really big way in his 1962 novel, Something Wicked This Way Comes, which deals with a kind of a, an evil carnival that comes to a small town. Um, but here is the first appearance of the illustrated man. So, Bradbury's illustrated man first appeared in a men's magazine. A little bit of baggage comes with that. Now we come to another magazine. This is a, a kind of a family magazine, the Saturday Evening Post. Very popular in its day. Came out, I believe, weekly. More or less had something in it for everyone. And here is a Bradbury story from that particular issue. This is a story called The World the Children Made. But in The Illustrated Man, this story, where it's reprinted, is retitled. It's called The Velt. My Afrikaans-speaking friends tell me that it should be pronounced The Felt with a th. So the story The Velt is a timeless story. It's a story of Bradbury's that is stuck around and has really stood the test of time because it deals with some kind of universal things that I think will always be true. Technically, the story is about a kind of virtual reality world. Um, there's a family in some vague future time where they have a so-called nursery installed. And the nursery is a place where you send your children to keep them entertained, you close the door on them, and then you can carry on doing your adult things, whatever those things might be. The children playing in the nursery, in this type of nursery, are able to conjure up any world that they want. It's a virtual reality setting. And these particular children, they're called Peter and Wendy. There's an allusion there to Peter Pan, of course. They summon up this um, African savannah with, I suppose, giraffes and zebras and lions. And it's all incredibly real. Now, if you've ever seen Star Trek's holodeck, that's really what this is. It's a place you go in and you sort of tell the computer what you want and it creates this virtual world for you and you can move around within the space. So that's what these kids do. Without wishing to spoil the story, the parents who've just dumped their children in this nursery and left them to their own devices, the parents come to a sticky end. Actually, the lions turn out to be able to eat people. So uh, the parents don't survive the story. That virtual reality aspect of it is one of the things that makes this story survive over time, because we're always seeing representations of virtual reality, and yet we're never really getting good enough virtual reality. Every 10 years or so, somebody comes up with a new headset and says, put this on, you'll experience a virtual world, it'll be really immersive, it'll be just like you're really there. And you try it, and you're amazed by it, but you very soon tire of the, the real kind of virtual realities that we've had. 
10 years later, somebody comes along with a new piece of technology and says, now it works, now it works, try it. And you try it. And again, you're wowed by it. But then you get bored and you put it to one side. And it seems every 10 years we have a, a return of virtual reality. Well, Bradbury really invented it. But because Bradbury doesn't get bogged down too much in technology, his story hasn't dated and his vivid descriptions of what goes on on the veldt in the savannah, um, that is really what comes across well in the story. And I, on top of that, I always maintain that this story is actually a, well, it's a morality tale, but it's about bad parenting. More than anything else, the theme of the story is bad parenting. And what Bradbury was really doing was telling the story of what parents did when television came along. When television came along, parents would put their children and plonk them down in front of the TV and let the TV do all the entertaining. And so that's what this story does. But instead of a TV, it's a virtual reality environment. So it's a morality tale. So for various reasons, this story has survived. It's been adapted countless times. And I'll come to some of the adaptations later on in the talk. This is how the Velt begins. George, I wish you'd look at the nursery. Well, what's wrong with it? I don't know. Well then, I just want you to look at it, is all. Or call a psychologist in to look at it. What would a psychologist want with a nursery? Hmm. Of course, it's no normal nursery. This is the mysterious world that Bradbury is drawing us into. We've had a men's magazine. We've had a family magazine. Now we have a pulp magazine. Thrilling wonder stories. If you've heard of pulp fiction, and most people have, you may think that the term pulp fiction is referring to the style of writing, that it's trashy writing. But in fact, the term pulp fiction really comes from what these magazines were made of. Uh, the original pulp magazines were made out of very cheap paper, made of wood pulp. And uh, they weren't designed to last. They were meant to be ephemeral. You would buy the magazine, you'd read it, you'd throw it away. Many of these pulp magazines have survived. I've got a couple and um, when you handle them, you can feel the paper sort of crumbling to dust in your hands because it's really very cheap paper. It's very brittle. But that's what pulp magazines were. Once mag these magazines took off, then they became associated with a very um, hokey style of writing. But uh, that was a secondary thing. Thrilling wonder stories <laughs> with a, a busty maiden on the cover, typical of these pulp magazines of the time. Um, notice there are some authors named on the cover. Bradbury doesn't get a mention, but inside there is a Bradbury story. This is a story called Kaleidoscope with an illustration in a pulp magazine. And it's a simple story. It's set on a spaceship which blows up and the astronauts get flung into space in all different directions. This is the very first paragraph of the story. The first concussion cut the ship up the side like a giant can opener. The men were thrown into space like a dozen wriggling silverfish. They were scattered into a dark sea, and the ship, in a million pieces, went on like a meteor swarm, seeking a lost sun. Wow. Straight into the action. No messing. Uh, no uh, establishing where we are. We just go straight in. Yes, there's a spaceship, but it doesn't survive the first paragraph of the story. 
a very dramatic way of opening a story. And one of the things that makes Bradbury a master of the short story is that he can conceive of a sequence of events, a sort of a potential story, if you like. But like any good short story writer, he knows that there's going to be a perfect place to come into that story and a perfect place to leave that story. So out of the, the range of potential content of the story, these are the beginning and end. His early stories written in the 1940s and the early 1950s are really very, very efficient pieces of storytelling. Um, and his descriptions are poetic. And this is what Bradbury became known for. Uh, is the poetry of his prose fiction. Kaleidoscope is one of those stories that, in other hands, in the hands of a science fiction writer like a Robert Heinlein or an Arthur C. Clarke or an Isaac Asimov, might have got bogged down in uh, details of how the rocket ship work, um, in describing how it is that a meteor can hit a spaceship and tear it apart. Bradbury does none of that. He just wants you to experience it. It doesn't matter how, really, the, the how or the why. Um, doesn't matter what the mechanism is. He just wants you to experience it. And that's what the story does very well. The story is an existential story. These astronauts, after the explosion, they all drift off in different directions. And the whole story really is just them having conversations over the radio as they speculate on their individual fates. So there might be one astronaut who's going to drift off into infinity, um, never to be seen again. Another one who might be heading directly for the sun. It's a really very poignant story and very well told. And it's made excellent radio on several occasions over the years, radio drama, and also a stage play. Bradbury has done a stage play version of this. And uh, it's never, as far as I can recall, it's never been done as a television piece or as a film piece. And I think that's wise, because this is a story that works better in the mind than visually in front of you. So a story that's come from pulp magazine origins, but is beautifully, exquisitely written. And uh, this pulp baggage is what the story has to leave behind once it becomes part of the illustrated man. Another example uh, of a story, and, and again, a different magazine, this is Maclean's magazine, which is a, a Canadian magazine, sort of a general purpose magazine for everyone, a bit of journalism, a bit of fiction. And this particular issue contained a story by Bradbury called The Rocket Man. Now, The Rocket Man is a very simple short story. It's about this child who we see represented in the uh, in the artist's interpretation here. It's a child whose father is an astronaut, hence the title The Rocket Man. And just as um, my parents and your parents might have gone off to the factory every morning or to the office every morning, this boy's parents, well, this boy's father, goes off into space every day. But space is an incredibly dangerous place to go. And when I was looking at The Rocket Man earlier, I realised that really you can sum up the entire story with just two sentences. Here's a little section, which I think says it all. It's told by the child. Dad looked at me, and then, for the first time that day, at the sky. Mother always watched him when he glanced at the stars. So that two sentences has the three characters 
represented in it. There's the, the storyteller who is the boy, the father and the mother. And you can see the father is looking from the child to the stars, probably torn because he has to leave his child in order to go to do his dangerous job. And the mother, who is again torn because she sees the way he looks at the stars. She sees that the husband is in love with space, if you like, but she also is very fearful of what may become of him. So two sentences encapsulate the entire story. What the story does in more general terms is it normalises space. It doesn't talk about technology. It talks about what would be the impact on people uh, if we lived in a world where people travelled in space regularly. And of course, we've now reached that world. We, we, we're living in that world. So Bradbury was really ahead of the game. Some people say that Bradbury doesn't do characters or can't do characters. To people who say that, I say, go and read The Rocket Man. It really shows that Bradbury does know how to do characters. On to another magazine. This is Esquire, the men, men's magazine. Again, another issue. And this one contains a story called The Last Night of the World. And this is an end of the world story. But it's a kind of end of the world story that only Bradbury could write. He doesn't talk about the politics of the end of the world. He doesn't talk about missiles. Well, there's a little bit of speculation about that in the story. But it's mostly two people in a domestic setting, having a conversation. And you kind of realise as the story goes on that this isn't a big what if. The story begins, what would you do if you knew this was the last night of the world? What would I do? You mean seriously? Yes, seriously. And the rest of the story is almost literally a conversation between two people. Probably the most dramatic thing that happens in the story is that there's a dripping tap but it is such an incredible philosophical reflection on uh, what it is to consider the end of the world. And of course, cast your mind back to the 1950s. World War II had happened, of course. Hiroshima had been bombed at the end of World War II. Nagasaki had been bombed. And I think it was in 1950 that the Soviet Union exploded a hydrogen bomb. I might have the timeline slightly wrong, but it was a time when... Everybody was on the edge of their seat because although we'd had a world war, it now looked as if we had the means to destroy the entire planet. But imagine that kind of story in a men's magazine. It's just crazy. When the story comes into the illustrated man, it has to leave that baggage behind and it now lives in association with the other stories around it. So the story in, in the book lives in a different context to where it would have been in this magazine appearance. Now, another magazine, Collier's, another one of these sort of general magazines with um, factual articles and bits of fiction thrown in. And this issue of Collier's contained this story, which was published as To the Future. When this was collected into The Illustrated Man, it was retitled uh, The Fox and the Forest. And I believe that was Bradbury's preferred title, and I think To the Future was probably a magazine editor's title, um, but I'd need to, to check into that. The reason I'm raising this story uh, is because it's a time travel story, 
And what the illustrated man does is it really shows that Bradbury can tell all of the basic types of science fiction story. You've got spaceships, you've got your sort of virtual reality, you've got uh, end of the world, and here you've got time travel. He's really covering the spectrum of what science fiction uh, has traditionally covered. This story is about people from a future further ahead than we are, where there is a totalitarian regime, and for their own safety, they've travelled back in time. And in fact, they've travelled to before our time. Um, they actually, I believe, end up in 1938 in Mexico. So it, uh, they've travelled into the past of the reader. It has some of Bradbury's most effective prose poetry. So I just want to share that with you here. This is the first paragraph of the story, as it appears in the book, The Illustrated Man. The same story when it was in the magazine, in Collier's magazine, the introductory paragraph was cut down. There were fireworks the very first night, things that you should be afraid of, perhaps, for they might remind you of more, of other more horrible things. But these were beautiful rockets that ascended into the ancient soft air of Mexico and shook the stars apart in blue and white fragments. Again, what an opening. We're being brought in on a visual display of these fireworks. We're told we're in a place, which is Mexico, and there's a bit of foreshadowing there. These fireworks might remind you of other more horrible things. It turns out the characters in the story are from this totalitarian future. So those are the horrible things that the main characters will be reminded of. That's not all of the first paragraph. It goes on. Everything was good and sweet. The air was that blend of the dead and the living, of the rains and the dust, of the incense from the church and the brass smell of the tubers on the bandstand which pulsed out vast rhythms of La Paloma. So we've gone from these, <laughs> these rockets, the fireworks of the opening line. Now we've got smells. We've got the blend of the dead and the living. Bradbury's kind of taken us to the um, the Mexican Day of the Dead here. There's a celebration going on. There's a brass band. There's music. There's rhythm. So we've got visuals. We've got smell. We've got sound. We've got rhythm that we can feel. The, the bandstand is pulsing out these vast rhythms. It's a rhythm you can feel in your very being. But that's not all. It goes on. The church doors were thrown wide, and it seemed as if a giant yellow constellation had fallen from the October sky and lay breathing fire upon the church walls. A million candles sent their colour and fumes about. Now, a lesser writer would have said, there's a church, and inside there's a hundred candles all lit. Not Bradbury. Bradbury can't do that. Bradbury has to has to allow you to feel. He has to allow you to experience it. He can't just point to a thing and say there's a thing. He has to allow you to feel what it's like to be in the presence of that thing. So again, we've got the visuals of the fireworks, we've got the smell, we've got the sound, we've got the rhythm. And now we've got this metaphor of this constellation of stars that have fallen from the sky, these point sources of light, and they're breathing fire on the church walls. And... Uh, 
the colour and the fumes being sent all about. What a feast of sensual experiences going on in the first paragraph of a story. It's amazing. Now, some people will look at that and say that's incredibly overwritten. And okay, I can see that that's one point of view with this. But I look at that and see that Bradbury has introduced us in a very emotive way into a world. We don't know what the story is yet, but my God, he's brought us into the world of the story. On to another story, another one from a pulp magazine, um, Startling Stories, again, Busty Maiden on the cover. Again, some authors named on the cover of the magazine. Uh, back in their day, both Murray Leinster and Clifford Simak were very famous science fiction writers. Bradbury is in this issue, but he's not named on the cover, so he wasn't a big name at the time that this story um, came about. This one contains the story Marionettes, Inc. And this is one of Bradbury's robot stories. Uh, unlike his friend Isaac Asimov, who uh, invented a whole technology for robots called positronics, uh, Bradbury didn't really care how his robots worked. He just knew that he wanted to write stories where you had robots that looked exactly like you and me. And in that way, his his robot stories are timeless because it doesn't matter how they work. We don't need to know what's inside them. We just need to know that they're just like you and me. That's all. That's all there is to it. The story is it, it's quite a, a cheeky story. It's a bit of a comedy, really, but it's also a thriller and a science fiction story. The main character, Brailing, kind of wants to go away and do his own thing, but uh, not have his wife checking up on him. So he has a replica made of himself. Uh, the replica stays with the wife uh, while he goes off and does his shenanigans. <laughs> Here's a passage from the text where we come the closest we get, really, to finding out what's inside these robots, these very lifelike robots. And bear in mind, this was written in the 1940s. This was one of the earliest stories in the collection, The Illustrated Man. Hello, Brailing, he said. Hello, Brailing, said Brailing. They were identical. Smith stared. Is this your twin brother? I never knew. Ah, no, no, said Brailing quietly. Bend close. Put your ear to Brailing Two's chest. Smith hesitated and then leaned forward to place his head against the uncomplaining ribs. Tick, 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 tick. And that is how Ray Bradbury tells you this is a robot. You don't need to know what's inside there. There's no pulling back of the skin to reveal transistors and wiring. None of that. Uh, it's just a machine, but it looks just like you or me. And that's how Bradbury's robots work. That's why a story like this is timeless, because it's not dependent on any particular technology, and therefore it's not going to date. And in recent years, we've seen countless films and TV series uh, like Humans and Westworld, uh, where this kind of robot exists. In Westworld, we do see some of the behind the scenes of how they're made and all of that. But those robots are essentially Bradbury robots. You don't really need to know how they're made. You just need to know they're just like us. They're indistinguishable from us. This is how Bradbury's robots have survived through time, if you like. Now, we're going to run out of time soon, so I'm going to uh, draw the sort of detailed discussion to a close and move on to look at uh, a few of the adaptations 
of these stories from the illustrated man. Just before I do that, when The Martian Chronicles, Bradbury's second book, uh, came out in paperback, there was a little blurb on it from the critic Clifton Fadiman, which says, unless I misread Bradbury, he is telling us that human beings are still mental and moral children who cannot be trusted with the terrifying toys they have by some tragic accident invented. So Fadiman really saw that Bradbury was presenting technologies and showing how incapable we were of controlling them. And uh, Fadiman saw Bradbury as being rather anti-technology. And this was a, a, a kind of a label that was stuck on Bradbury as being an anti-science fiction writer. Now, um, there may be some truth in that, but mostly what Bradbury was doing was writing morality tales. Um, and if anything, he was warning us against possible futures. One of the things that Bradbury liked to say was, I don't so much predict the future as try to prevent it. And so Bradbury has picked up this reputation as being sort of anti-scientific um, advance, anti-technology. And the Fadiman quote really um, played into that. And it's something that's stuck from the Martian Chronicles and the Illustrated Man, Bradbury has been trapped as being a science fiction writer. He moved on after this. Uh, I mean, within a couple of years, he wrote Dandelion Wine, which is as far from science fiction as you can get. He wrote Something Wicked This Way Comes, again, very long way from science fiction. And the whole rest of his career, from 1951 through to 2012, when he died, he wrote very little science fiction. And yet, he was trapped with this label of science fiction writer and anti-science writer. But in reality, Bradbury was incredibly optimistic. Uh, he believed very much in humankind's future in space. He supported uh, the exploration of space. He was a strong supporter of NASA. He was an early a supporter of the Planetary Society, um, and he, he really believed that humankind had a future. So his riposte to Clinton, uh, Clifton Fadiman was to say, no, I assure you, I'm not as anti-scientific as Fadiman makes me out. But unfortunately, that label stuck. So we're talking about a book that's 70 years old now. But these stories within the book have proven to have a life of their own, in 1969, there was a film version of The Illustrated Man, uh, which starred Rod Steiger and Claire Bloom. And it's not a very good film, quite frankly. It's a bit clunky. Uh, it doesn't really do any of the stories justice. And it has some very strange decisions, such as choosing to put the Rod Steiger character, he's the Illustrated Man character, actually putting him into every one of the stories, which is not what happens in the book at all. And it just, I think, just confuses matters. But anyway, um, some parts of the film worked nicely. One part that worked is the tattooing of uh, Rod Steiger. Obviously, they're not real tattoos, they're painted on by a makeup artist. But um, they did a, a magnificent job of making Rod Steiger look as if he was tattooed from head to toe. They also um, allowed you to see the whole body 
a lot of the illustrators who've done um, artwork for the Illustrated Man over the years have shied away from showing the entire figure. And of course, you can't really show full frontal nudity on a book cover or, in, or uh, on a film poster, even in 1969. Um, but they, they made a good job of that part of the film, but it's not a great film. The individual stories from The Illustrated Man were long a staple on radio drama. So in the 1950s, um, before television took over as the main mass entertainment home medium, people were listening to radio drama on a, on a daily basis, and Bradbury's stories were a real staple part of that. And the recordings of those survive to this day, and some of them are really still astonishing uh, productions. Over the years, the stories have been adapted as well for the visual form. So the story The Valt was made into a short film in the 1970s. There was a Swedish television adaptation, I think, in the 70s as well. Uh, Bradbury himself adapted it for his own TV series in the 80s or the 90s. Um, and despite the very low budget of that series, the Ray Bradbury Theatre, they made a decent job of presenting this particular story, at least presenting the dramatics of the story. Um, and a few years ago, um, there was a Dead Mouse track that uh, was based on the Valt, and the music video um, was based on the story as well. So this small short story from a 1950s Saturday Evening Post has survived and has been adapted and revived again and again and again. It speaks to the idea of bad parenting. It speaks to the idea of virtual reality and what we might do if we could summon up whatever we wanted. Bradbury's stories have a long life in comics. Uh, EC Comics adapted a lot of Bradbury stories. This is one from the illustrated man called Zero Hour. I haven't talked about this story, but this has been adapted for comics. It's been on radio. It's been on television. It's been everywhere. Bradbury adapted it for his TV series. Not one of his finest hours, I have to say. It's not a great um, TV episode. But just a few years ago, I think about three or four years ago, there was a major TV series based on Zero Hour, which is just a short story from The Illustrated Man. It was called The Whispers. It was cancelled after about three episodes, <laughs> so it didn't do very well, unfortunately. And there was nothing of Bradbury left by the time it had been converted into this ongoing TV series, unfortunately. But the mere fact that a story written in the 1940s, appearing in a pulp magazine, then collected into a book, a book which has been in print for 70 years, and the stories are still being adapted again and again. It's quite remarkable. There are very few authors that that, that happens to, and it really comes down to the quality of the writing, the vividness of the ideas, and the fact that they are timeless ideas. Bradbury doesn't tie himself to any particular technology with his stories, especially his science fiction stories, and so they're able to stand up over 70 years later. And what about this? Rocket Man, Elton John, song written by Elton John and Bernie Taupin. The Wall Street Journal from uh, about three years ago. Bernie Taupin tells the story behind 1972's Rocket Man. The hit song of Elton John, which of course uh, came back into the news because well, President Trump started tweeting about Rocket Man. Um, but also there was the film about Elton John, which was called Rocket Man. The song is inspired 
by the Bradbury story. It's not an adaptation of the Bradbury story, but the mundaneness of the man who goes off to work in space every day is the inspiration for that um, amazingly successful song, which has lived nearly as long as the original Bradbury story has lived. The book itself appeared in 1951. The following year, there was a British edition, which had a slightly different table of contents, and then it has remained in print forever. Probably the best depiction of the illustrated man character comes from a 1967 edition of the book, and the artwork is by Dean Ellis. And you can see the the beautiful lines of the... Um, tattoos on the illustrated man and you can see that this version of the illustrated man well first of all he's got no clothes on that's exactly how Bradbury describes the illustrated man as being illustrated from um, neck to toe Dean Ellis shows us this here this artwork first appeared in 1967 and in 1969 the film comes out with Rod Steiger as the illustrated man and I'm in no doubt, really, that the designs that you see on Steiger in the film are very much inspired by this particular piece of artwork by Dean Ellis. And the book's been in print for 70 years, loads of different covers. It's been in print in different languages. Here are just some of the images, some of the covers um, that the book has had. And it's as good today as it ever was. I think I only own two editions of The Illustrated Man, and my favourite one is the the first one I ever owned, and it's got a wonderful image by the artist Peter Goodfellow. But the book inspires visual artists, and I think that's one of the uh, things that's often forgotten about Bradbury's writing, is that he has inspired countless visual artists, and that is generating a whole other load of paratext that is sitting there and surrounding the book before the reader even gets to the text. Well, I hope you found that interesting. That was Ray Bradbury's The Illustrated Man at 70, a presentation that I gave as part of the University of Wolverhampton's Arts Fest 2021 on the 16th of November. That's it for today. I hope you'll join me next time for another Bradbury 100. If you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe using your podcast app. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and all good podcast places. And please also check out my YouTube series, Bradbury 101, and my other audio podcast, Science Fiction 101. For information on all of these, head to bradburymedia.co.uk. Bradbury 101